0: We're continuing our teaching series uh, today from the New Testament book of Galatians. And today we're going to be looking at the changeless promises of God, first given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And in, uh, in, in this same passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today from, Gen, uh, from Galatians chapter 3, we're going to discover seven promises that are meant for us. And the cause for which the Apostle Paul is pleading is so crucial that he uses all of his skills in, in argument and in debate to uh, their ultimate. And as he has done before, he turns to the call of Abraham, which would have been uh, understood by all of his Jewish uh, and non-Jewish listeners at the time as the hinge point for his teaching. Now one of the things to keep in mind if you're having a little difficulty as I have in understanding all of Paul's thinking in this book and his arguments uh, for God is is that Paul was a trained rabbi in the Jewish faith and what would have been clear and convincing to a Jew uh, who was familiar with a rabbi's methods of teaching may be a little vague and difficult for us to follow sometimes as it was for the Galatians who were also non-Jews but the basic point we can get, and that is that the whole problem of human life is determined by our either relationship with or lack of relationship with God. And uh, Paul Tillich uh, once said that a secular psychiatrist always starts a therapeutic process that he can never finish, meaning that the root of humanity's problems are not psychological but spiritual. See, we were created for fellowship with God. That's an irrefutable fact of nature, and outside of that fellowship, we can never really truly find uh, fulfillment and meaning. Our need and efforts at fellowship with God is distorted uh, by our understanding of who God is. How we see God uh, it determines how we're going to seek him and long for him and want to either have a relationship with him or not. But the point of our lesson today is that for Paul, the God with whom we desperately need fellowship is a trustworthy God. He has made promises to bless us and he is going to keep all of his promises. Let's bow in a moment of prayer, shall we? Lord, we don't come to you today with our religion in one hand and our morality in the other. We don't come insisting that we deserve to be blessed by you. But we know that you have promised to bless your people, and if we turn from our wicked ways, as the scripture says, we will hear from heaven, and you will heal not only our land, but our individual lives. So help us today to bring our pride to the cross of Christ, and let our prayer be, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me, fill me, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on me. The New Testament book of Galatians is all about how we can be made right with God. That's the that's the story. The apostle Paul wrote this emergency letter to remind us that being right with God is about believing in Jesus Christ. It's not about achieving anything on our own. Now, salvation is not about going to church. It's not about being religious. It's not about trying harder. It's not about turning over a new leaf. You can't purchase a ticket to heaven by doing good things in this life. It, God is, impre- is not impressed by our efforts at self-improvement. But that's not a popular message in our culture today because so many people actually do think that, we, that being in a re- right relationship with God happens by our own efforts. The Apostle Paul, however, offers up another alternative, and it's called grace. Grace is counterintuitive, and it runs against the grain of our human nature. De- deep down inside, we all believe that if we just try harder, things will work. Things will work out between us and God. It's not true, of course, but we still believe it anyway. And then comes along the Apostle Paul. Uh, with his radical message that acceptance with God comes by faith alone based on what Christ has already done for us on the cross. And that, can't, that, can, that can be a tough pill to swallow because it runs counter to our independent, uh, self-made spirit. Now I know there are people who don't believe that a person can go to heaven in the last hours of their life if they turn from their sin and cry out to God for mercy. because we're skeptical of so-called deathbed confessions. I know there are also people who don't believe that we are saved by faith alone in Christ, not by something we do. That bothers some people because we like to think that all good people go to heaven, that if we just do enough good works, and if our good works outweigh our sins, God will let us into heaven. He's not going to turn anybody away. And in each of these cases, our argument is really with God. The Bible is clear on this matter. We are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. In other words, the only people who go to heaven are those who admit that they don't deserve to be there. As long as we cling to our self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, we can't be rescued. Our stubborn pride will keep us out of heaven unless we finally stop trying to do it on our own and trust Christ for salvation. Paul's argument at this point in the book of Galatians goes like this. Why would you think about going back to the old life when God has offered you so many blessings in Christ. It doesn't make sense to go back to, the, to trying to keep all the Old Testament laws as a means of salvation when you have discovered the richness of the grace of Christ. The only reason to go back would be because we don't appreciate what we have now in Christ. So in Galatians 3, beginning with verse 15, we discover uh, Paul gives us seven promises— that God makes to every Christ follower. And if you're a Christian, these things are true uh, not only for you, but of you. These seven promises are the permanent possession of every believer, and they don't depend on your performance or what you do. So the next time you're tempted to give up, just think of these seven promises and let your heart be encouraged with all that God has already done for you. Promise number one is a new freedom. In chapter 3, verse 23 and 25, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way, Paul says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Now, you may be asking the question, if keeping the law won't save us, then why did God give the law in the first place? Well, this passage offers us an answer. Paul's point was was that the law was given to reveal our sin and to show us our need for Jesus. The law was like an x-ray that reveals the cancer of our sin. It says, do this and live. No matter how hard you try, though, we can never perfectly keep all the law. And as our failures keep piling up, we end up in the prison of a guilty conscience. Each time we break another law of God, we add more to the prison term. We're locked up with no way out. And if we, if we are thoughtful at all, our continued failure to do what God uh, requires leads us to conclude that if we ever, if we're ever to get out of this prison of sin, someone else must come and let us out. In that sense, the law is a schoolmaster, it's a teacher, it's a tutor that patiently leads us to cry out to God for mercy. That's where faith comes in. When we finally admit that we can't save ourselves, when we reach out in simple faith to Jesus, the prison doors swing open and we are saved and we're liberated from our sin. Now the law has a crucial role to play in convicting us of that sin. Let me illustrate. Suppose you're walking down the street when you see a sign on a park bench that says, wet paint, do not touch. Now, if you're like most people, when you see that sign, what do you wanna do? You must have this almost irresistible urge to reach out and touch that bench. If the sign had not been there, It never would have occurred to you to reach out and touch that park bench, but something about that sign awakens a desire within you, and even though it says, do not touch, we want to reach out and touch it. And the sticky paint on our fingers is proof that we are a sinner. Well, in a similar way, the law convicts us of sin, but it cannot change us on the inside. You know, if we drive while we're drunk, we may get a ticket for driving under the influence. The law declares that we are guilty, it penalizes our behavior, but you know what? It can't stop us from drinking again. The law condemns us because it arouses within us a desire to do the very thing we know is wrong. At the moment we come to Christ, this vicious cycle is broken. First, uh, when we come to Christ for salvation, God declares us righteous and he wipes away the record of our guilty disobedience. But if our record is clear, then our conscience is clean, and that means the law can't keep us in the prison of sin anymore. The law that condemned us now has no power over us. We are set free from the trap of trying to please God by outward human behavior. That's true freedom, and it it's, comes only to those who learn to trust Christ. Here's promise number two, we are given a new identity. In verse 26, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is truly an astounding statement, a very simple statement, but truly astounding. Paul is boldly declaring that everyone who believes in Jesus is now a son or a daughter of the living God. Our identity has been radically changed. Once we were children of the evil one living in sin because that was our spiritual heritage, but by grace, we've been transferred into the family of God and we've been given a brand new identity it's incredible to think about it because about that because it applies to all believers without exception if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior we are a child of God but there's a crucial limitation here the change of identity is only for those who have faith in Christ refuting the notion of universal fatherhood of God or the universal brotherhood of man. Sometimes people say, we're all God's children, as if to imply that everyone on earth is a child of God, but that's not exactly true. There's not a verse, a single verse in all of the Bible that teaches that. A more biblical way to say it would be that we were all created in God's image. We were all created by God, but only those who trust in Christ are truly God's children. Without faith in Jesus Christ, there is no entrance into the family of God. Here's promise number three. We're given a new relationship. Verse 27, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Note the word baptized here. Does it refer to water baptism or to spirit baptism? The difference is between the outward ordinance of baptism with water and the inward miracle whereby the Holy Spirit puts us in a right relationship with God and in the body of Christ. So is Paul referring to either, is he referring to water or is he referring to spirit? And the answer is yes, he's referring to both. In the New Testament, water baptism and the Spirit baptism are often referred to in the same verse because in the first century, they happened so close together. We're baptized with the Spirit the moment we, are, we put our faith and trust in Christ. And As we come to Him in faith, the Holy Spirit graciously places us in the body of Christ. For a youth or adult, the outward act of water baptism is a public demonstration of an inward change that takes place the moment we trust Christ. And in the first century, this miracle of regeneration was closely followed by water baptism for adults who came to faith. In the book of Acts, we see new adult believers undergoing water baptism immediately after their commitment to Jesus Christ and a new way of life. And we also see whole households following Christ in water baptism, children, youth, and adults, after a new birth experience by an adult in that household. So Paul's point is that when we come to Christ, we enter into a new relationship that really changes all of life. Now we are clothed, he says, with Christ. Coming to Christ is like putting on a whole new wardrobe. We exchange the rags of our old life for the beautiful robes of the character of Jesus. The old life is gone, forever. Out with the old addictions, out with bad language, out with the lies, out with the bad relationships, out with sinful habits, out with uncontrolled anger, out with racial prejudice, all of that has to go when Jesus comes into our life. What does the well-dressed Christian wear then? Well, we wear the character of Jesus. And we'll see more of Paul talking about more of that when we get to chapter 5. But when people see us, they should see Jesus. And if they knew us before... They will surely want to know what's happened to you. And we can tell them, I'm a new person. Jesus Christ has changed my life. Of course, this change is both instantaneous and it's gradual. We're given a new wardrobe the moment we are saved, but we usually try to hang on to the old one for a while. We're so used to the smelly rags of sin that it's hard to give that up, but we have to because coming to Christ is like joining a new team, it's like putting on a new uniform. You know, suppose a member of the New York Yankees uh, was traded to the Detroit Tigers, but he shows up at Comerica Park and is still wearing his Yankee pinstripes. What would his new teammate say? Well, they'd tell him to either change his uniform or go back to New York, I imagine. And they should, because once we join a new team, we change uniforms. Coming to Christ is like that. We now join his team, and we wear the uniform, the character of Jesus, so that everyone knows that we belong to him. Promise number four, we're given a new standing. Verse 28, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. This is another amazing promise given to the children of God. In Christ, all the barriers that separate us have been torn down. Outward distinctions have no barrier to salvation. There are no divisions in the body of Christ based on race or ethnic origin or skin color. You know, um, you can be a Jew, a Greek, a Bolivian, an Egyptian, a Russian, a Filipino, a Nigerian, a Norwegian, it doesn't matter to God. You can be a Heinz 57 variety and still come to Christ. God doesn't favor one race or one ethnic group over the other, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The same thing is true regarding social classes. Slave and free walk hand in hand in the family of God. You know, that would have been an astounding thought in the first century. The class distinctions that matter so much in our world, rich versus poor, upper class versus middle class, old money versus new money, don't dominate the Christian church. We are all made right with God on the same basis, and that is... Grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And distinctions between men and women don't matter when it comes to salvation. Men and women are made right with God in exactly the same way. way. And And that means that in the first century, a Gentile slave woman would have exactly the same rights in the eyes of God as a Jewish free man. That would have been another astounding thought in that time period. See, the ground was laid for true Christian unity. In Christ, we are one. God doesn't play favorites. Promise number five, a new future. Verse 29, and now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. To be Abraham's seed means that we inherit all the promises that God originally made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Originally, those promises were just for the Jews, but in Christ, they are now extended to all believers. Jeremiah 31 explains that the promises revolve around total forgiveness of our sin and implantation of a new heart that gives us a desire to follow Jesus, to obey God. Ultimately, these promises extend even past death in this life and guarantee us life with God in heaven. An heir, you see, is a person who by law is a member of a particular family. And if you're an heir, you have a legal right to the inheritance. And since we're now heirs of God's family, we have a right to everything that God has promised his children. The world focuses on things like money and power and position and all the wealth that goes with it. But as Christians, we have something far greater. We know Jesus Christ. And in him we find forgiveness and freedom and an abundant life, joy, inner peace, power, new motivation, redemption. And that's just for this life. And when we die, we go to heaven to live forever with God. The world does not have an answer to the problem of sin and death. But in Jesus, we have been delivered from our sins, and we've been set free from the fear of death. And if we know Jesus, death is the doorway to the presence of God. It's not an end. It's a new beginning. Here's promise number six. We're given a new position. We're going to jump into chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Now, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Now, these verses tell us that Christ came to redeem us and to adopt us into his family. To redeem means to set free, you know, from slavery by the payment of a price. The word comes from the slave markets of the first century. You redeemed a slave by paying the purchase price and then setting that slave free. Now suppose that in addition to freeing that slave, you also said to them, hey, why don't you come home to live with me? I want you to move into my house. I want you to legally you know, take my name and join my family. I wanna share an equal, uh, my, my inheritance equally with you. Now as amazing as that sounds, that is exactly what God did for us the moment we trust Christ. He sets us free, he redeems us, from the slavery to sin, and, and he bought us, uh, brought us, he brings us into his family, and he gives us full rights, full rights as his children. The concept of full rights means that no matter how badly we've sinned before, there are no second-class children in God's family. We are adopted into the family. In the Jewish culture, young boys are considered men by going through a ritual called bar mitzvah. Now, you might say that when we came to Christ, we come in as full members with rights and privileges equal to those who have been part of the family for 40 or 50 years. We can pray, we can claim God's promises on the same basis as everybody else. Now, let's suppose for a moment that one of your kids does something wrong and later feels bad about it, so they come to you and say, Mom or Dad, I'm very sorry for what I've you know, done, and and I'm going to try to do better in the future. I'm going to try to be more of a son or daughter to you from now on. And when you hear those words, you might say something like this, you know, I love you, and I'm glad you feel bad about what you did, and, and you want to do better in the future, but I want you to know that you could never be more of a son or daughter to me than you are right now, because being my child has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. You are my child by virtue of being part of this family. Nothing you can do will ever change that fact. Now think about that for a moment. If one of your kids should rebel against all that you have taught them, if they should move to some distant place and change their name so no one will ever know that they're part of your family, and if they adopt some way of life that's far removed from what you believe is right, you might be heartbroken, you might be angry, but no matter what they do, they're always going to be your child. And no matter what they do, there's a good chance you're still gonna love them at some level. Once a child, always a child. Nothing can change that fact. The same is really true in our relationship with God. Our standing uh, in God's family is not based on our performance. And that's good news because we all fail sooner or later. Our standing is based on God's grace, which means it doesn't depend on us. Once a child of God, always a child of God. We may do things that displease our Heavenly Father, and if we persist in our disobedience, will probably be disciplined by the Lord because discipline comes to all God's children. It's a mark of our salvation, but our standing in God's family is not based on our performance, but on grace. Now here's the final promise, and it's number seven. We're given a new assurance. Verses six and seven, and because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child, and since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Now here's the final promise in this passage. When we come to Christ, God sends his spirit uh, into our hearts and gives us new life and the assurance that we are God's children. But there is this still small voice of God that speaks to our soul and whispers, you are now a child of God, and that Holy Spirit cries out within us, Abba, Father. Now, Paul talks this way because the word Abba comes from an Aramaic word that children, little children, would use to speak to their fathers, and it's an intimate, it's a more personal word of enduring affection. In English, we might say dad or daddy or papa or dear father. It's a very tender way of talking about God. So no longer is God this distant person up there in the sky. He is now our heavenly dad. In all the world, there was only one person that I called dad. And when I or one of my two brothers would say dad, our father would turn and listen to our voices. The privilege of calling him dad was given to us and only to us. Same is true of my three kids. They are the only people in the world who have the unique relationship with me as father. I was one of my father's three sons. And I am the father to a son and two daughters, and they have a unique claim on me that other children don't have. So it is in the spiritual realm, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, God is our Heavenly Father. And we can come to him in prayer anytime, anywhere, for any reason, and he'll not turn us away. So when we're in trouble, when the world is turned against us, when we're so discouraged that we just feel like giving up, When we're confused about what to do next, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, comes into our life and whispers, talk to your Heavenly Father. He's waiting to hear from you. The Spirit within us brings us back to the Father again and again and teaches us to say, Abba, Father. It puts us in a a more intimate relationship with God. Well, verse 7 sums up uh, this entire lesson by reminding us that once we were slaves, now we're sons and daughters, and since we're sons and daughters, we're also heirs to all that God has promised. And if God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as Psalm 50 declares, saying that God has resources beyond our imagination, so do we because we're his children. All the resources of heaven are now at our disposal. And we have a wonderful future. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You see, the best is yet to come. So before we wrap up this morning, let me just review the seven promises again that God makes to us. They are the permanent possession of every believer. We have a new freedom. We are justified and set free from the law forever. We have a new identity. We're now God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. We have a new relationship. We have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. We have a new standing. We're all one in Christ, regardless of race or social standing or gender. We have a new promise. We are heirs to everything God has promised to his children. We're in a new position. We have the full rights of members of the family of God. And we have a new assurance. We have the Holy Spirit who teaches us to say, Abba, Father, who puts us in an intimate relationship with God. See, all these things are true for every believer, everywhere, at all time. They are unconditional promises. They don't depend on our performance. And in light of this, why would anyone, Paul says, want to go back to rule-keeping as a means of pleasing God? Why give up the riches of grace for the futility of the law? It just doesn't make sense. See, everything God has for us is wrapped up in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we receive Christ by faith when we reach out and trust him as our Lord and Savior. All these promises are free for the asking to those who come seeking Christ. Amen.